Hello, listeners. Welcome to Buried Voices in STEM. My name is M. Stacy, and I am one of the co-hosts for this podcast, along with Dr. Erica Tracy, Rora Dungo, and Charlize Williams. The aim of this podcast is to catalog the diverse journeys of individuals in STEM career paths and capture the perspectives of people with a variety of jobs and experience levels in science, technology, engineering, and math. This project is provided by the Neuroscience Institute Committee on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Georgia State University in Atlanta, under the leadership of Dr. Erica Tracy. We give special thanks to our Center for the Advancement of Students and Alumni at Georgia State and the Maximizing Access to Research Careers Grant from the National Institutes of Health for funding activities related to this podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to Buried Voices in STEM. Sit back and relax while we take a dive into the brightest minds around. Today, we're here with the amazing Dr. Kayla Singleton, who is a postdoctoral fellow in the Fondes Lab of Emory University and the co-founder of Black and Neuro. In this interview, Dr. Singleton will discuss her journey through neuroscience, balancing research with her personal life, maintaining her positivity, and details about the Black and Neuro organization. I am Dr. Kayla Singleton. I'm a Black, Samoan, queer woman and developmental neuroscientist. I'm currently a postdoc at Emory University and an adjunct faculty member at Agnes Scott College, which is my alma mater. And I study neurodevelopment and neurodevelopmental disorders. My research career started when I was in undergrad. I got an Endure Fellowship, which is like an undergraduate research fellowship from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Through that, I was able to do research in a bunch of different labs. Um, I worked in one lab that was like a primate lab, another lab that was more physiology-based. And then eventually, by my like junior year of college, I realized that I really liked and was good at studying neurodevelopment and neurodevelopmental disorders. And so from that, I decided to go to grad school. And I really wanted a graduate program that had like the foundations of neurodevelopment within it just because I actually knew nothing about it. I had never taken a neurodevelopment course. Um, and I was like, well, that's probably a good place to start. And here we are. When I was in the seventh or eighth grade, I had this science outreach program. I think it was sponsored by the University of Georgia. And they came to this like gifted science class I had. Um, and they let us dissect all of these different animal brains. So we did like sheep brains and cow brains. And I thought it was so cool. Like I thought it was the coolest thing that I'd ever done. And I always did really well in school, but I was never like a science and math person, like even a little bit. After that experience, I was like, no, I want to study the brain. This is like the coolest thing I've ever done. So at like 13, I was like really, really stubborn. And I didn't even know that like studying the brain was neuroscience. Uh, I just knew that it was neat. And so I was like, that's what I want to do, like when I go to college. And so I went through throughout high school still not really caring about science, like not even a little bit. And when it was time for me to apply to college, I was like, well, I need a, I need a college that has this like neuroscience thing in it. And Agnes Scott at the time was one of the few universities or colleges that had a neuroscience program that wasn't like brand new. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go here. That's what we're going to do. And my parents were like, are you sure? I said, yep. My parents still to this day, don't know anything about science and have very, very little idea about what I do. Um, They were always super encouraging of me. Their number one thing, um, I think for like any millennial was like, they were like, you have to go to college. They didn't really care what I did or what I studied, but their big thing was like, you got to go to college and get a degree. And so they've always been really supportive, like as best as they know how, but 
Like my my mom never went to college, she never finished college. My dad went to college, the ROTC. And so he just kind of like skated on by there uh, to get his degree and then joined the army. And so in a lot of ways, I felt like a first generation student, even though I wasn't. I think the difference is that they were just so supportive of me throughout that process. I remember when I was in college, I was a double major in neuroscience and classical history and culture. And when I called my dad to tell him that I was going to double major, he was like, does that cost more money? Like, is that going to be like more expensive for us? And I said, no, dad, it it costs more of my own blood, sweat and tears. It costs you nothing. Um, So their relationship with science, I think since the pandemic has like grown or at least grown in a way where they now are surrounded by more science than they ever thought of. Um, But in general, they had like very little to do with me going to college. So Agnes Scott is an all-women's college. Um, It's a private liberal arts institution. And it honestly is one of the things I think that shaped me the most. I I gained a lot of confidence in myself from being at Agnes. Um, Like all of the classes were small. I got to have like fantastic discussions with women about anything, like anything and everything. I took classes, like science classes, but I also took classes on like, I had one class that was like science, women, and religion. Um, I had another class about like racism and antiquity and in ancient Greece. And I think for me, the community there has always been really supportive. And that's everyone from like staff to student to faculty member. Um, And in general, I feel like I, I attribute a lot of my success to like the growth that I did at Agnes. Um, And I went through some really hard times when I was there too. And the way that that community just sort of like huddled around me for support was really great. My old mentors, Dr. Jennifer Laramore um, from biology department, and then Dr. Megan Drinkwater from the classics department were both exceptional. I did research in Dr. Laramore's lab for a few years. And then Dr. Drinkwater was always there to like encourage me with writing or with like translating. She tried to get me to take Latin a couple of times and I wouldn't do it. Um, but those like professors really stand out for me as people, as well as Dr. Lindsay Sampson, who's my ancient Greek professor. We, I think at one point my senior year, we were in like ancient Greek 400, which is wild to even think about. Um, but there were like three of us in the class. So four, if you counted her and we would just like go have class at a coffee shop instead of doing it in lab. And that was great. It was awesome. I think another big thing, I should mention this, one of the biggest like shocks and transitions I went through was when I graduated Agnes and I went to Georgetown for my PhD. And we, at Agnes, we always talk about the Agnes bubble, where it's like this very progressive, very like leftist, like abolition minded, like student body. And so I went from that to like a predominantly white institution in the capital of America. And so it was like night and day and it was really overwhelming. Like I would always hear stories of like women who get interrupted when they speak or like people who are talked down to just because they're like a woman or they're black or whatever. And that never happened to me at Agnes. And so when I went to Georgetown and it did happen, I was like, oh, we weren't joking. These weren't jokes. You guys are serious. You really think that that's okay. It was really off-putting. It took a while for me to like bounce back and recover from that. There aren't that many Black neuroscientists at Georgetown. I think when I was there, there were three of us. Um, it was me, my friends, Dr. Stephanie Slowly and Dr. Sequoia Ashburn. Um, and we were like a little trio. I was really uncomfortable for a while being that kind of assertive uh, with people, like being like, hey, I wasn't finished speaking or like having people talk over me or also 
there's like a specific kind of community that is built in certain classrooms where like everyone's voice is like valued and appreciated and you can just like talk or speak up about something. And it took me a while to find that groove at Georgetown. It's not that it didn't exist, but I wasn't comfortable doing it in the setting of what was essentially like a like white male dominated space um, because I hadn't really had any practice doing it. Um, And I feel like it was a great learning opportunity. And one of the things that I love the most about Georgetown in the same way that I feel about Agnes is despite the challenges and things that I went through, it made me the leader and the person that I am. It like has given me a lot of conviction in what I do and why I do it. I definitely felt discouraged in the beginning. My first year of graduate school was like a train wreck. It was horrible. I hated every second of it. And I felt like I was bad at science. Like I was bad at graduate school and that like classic imposter phenomenon of like, this is an accident. Someone has made a mistake letting me into this program. And I think truthfully, the way that I sort of like built the courage and like the gumption to to handle those issues was just by talking to other women in my program, just by like having those like complain vent session circles. And I was like, I'm so tired of this. And finally, one day in class, I just like snapped. And I was like, I was not done. Like I was still talking. I was still thinking, especially because most of our classes were like, we would like read a paper and then like pontificate about it. So it wasn't like there was a lecture. Like we were all just like speaking out of turn. Um, And it was like really empowering. I felt like really cool afterwards. But I also was really worried. And I was like, oh my God, everybody's going to hate me now. They're going to think I'm like super loud. And that did not happen, um, which was great. But I think one of the the biggest supports that I had at Georgetown were like my other, my peers, like the other women in our program um, and the other like women faculty as well were super great. And none of them really were people of color or like, aside from being women, didn't really have like an intersectional identity, but they were still so supportive of me. And I really value that. And so for me, a lot of like building that support network was like me walking into spaces and like being my authentic self and just seeing who like resonated with that or supported it. Or like, I think I'm really funny, like who laughed at my jokes or um, who wanted to have like complex and difficult conversations. And that came naturally. I don't think like I can't think of anybody in my graduate program that like I despise or that despises me, but there are definitely people who I'm still like really close friends with now where we just like got along better. We could understand each other's point of view and we taught each other things in the classroom and outside of the classroom, like about science and not. And I think one of the most valuable things that I learned in graduate school, which is something they like tell you before you go, but you don't really listen to them, (laughs) is um, it's not just about scientific growth. It's also about personal growth and finding your voice and your strengths and Sometimes that means also figuring out like what your weaknesses are and what you don't excel at. And so I think that's really like walking into those rooms and being myself is really how I built that support system. Our grad program and especially the faculty at Georgetown, it's like a predominantly white institution. And so the first, maybe like the first two years of graduate school, I like relied really heavily on my classmates, um, mainly because we had like classes together and we were like all balancing lab time. And then after that, I really reached out to like the DC community and tried to make friends who looked like me, who identified as I do, like tried to branch away from just having a group of friends from Georgetown and really embrace the culture of the city. I think one thing that really helped with that is that rent is so expensive in DC that I always had to have roommates. (laughs) So my roommates were 
really integral in me, like meeting new people, getting in touch with like the Black queer community in DC, getting in touch with like advocacy or like people who have cool jobs um, and do neat stuff. And I think that that's one of the reasons I was able to thrive so much in graduate school. Like once I made that transition and got comfortable, but also had the time to have friends outside of grad school, I really flourished as a person. For my like double major in undergrad, I learned a lot about like writing and storytelling and how powerful that is. I think the big difference between like me making friends in undergrad versus grad school is I'm like from Georgia and from Atlanta. So when I went to college in Decatur, all of my friends were either at the University of Georgia, at Georgia State or at Georgia Tech. And so I would see them all of the time. And I already had those sort of built-in community systems. So going to D.C. was the first time that I was like starting over And it was kind of terrifying, honestly, because I was like, do I like the things that I like because they've always been in proximity to me or do I actually like them? And so I had to do, on top of like normal grad student stuff, like a bit of self-discovery in that respect. My friendships outside of Georgetown have tremendously influenced like my, my science career in ways that I never really recognized probably until the pandemic started, like with the the advocacy and the the work I do with Black and Neuro um, and speaking on panels and things like that. The people that I know in DC who are like a part of those grassroots organizations and are doing a lot of like the social justice and climate change work have always, they've been like a level of intelligent that I often don't see in grad school. Like the ability to, not to say that these people don't exist, so no one gets mad at me, but like their ability to communicate with lay people their ability to like talk about an issue from multiple angles all of the time and keep in mind the different intersectionalities and identities and sort of factors of oppression and supremacy at play in real events that affect all of us that we just don't really talk about. And so from them, I think I've really learned the importance at looking at issues in this holistic way, but also the importance of like accountability and what we do and what we say, right? One of the biggest things that I try to advocate for and the work that I do in like the DEI space is accountability and what accountability looks like. Because I think a lot of the times when we think of accountability now, we think of punishment, which is not necessarily what accountability is. And so a lot of it has, I've learned from them a lot about communication, a lot about what it means to be an intellectual, even on accident, what it is like to be creative with the solutions to your problems. And I don't think that I would have gotten that knowledge from like going to grad school anywhere else, honestly. My like DEI work and advocacy work to me directly correlates to the science that I do and the way that I view that, right? One of the big things for me as a developmental neuroscientist is that I think and view the development of like the nervous system as similar to the development of scientists, right? When you talk about neurodevelopment and making like diverse cell types in the brain, it's regulated by these intrinsic processes like your DNA and genetics, but also these extracellular events and actions that occur, right? Whether that's like contact mediated cell changes or um, like, what is it? Like chemokines or chemoattractants and things like that. In my like very creative neurodevelopment mind that is similar to how you develop neuroscientists and scientists in general, right? Like it is the intersection of your identity as a person, plus the choices that you make that allow you to be who you are, that create this sort of mature and unique individual. So for me, it's my identity as 
a Black multiracial queer woman mixed with my choices, right? My decision to go to an all-women's college, my, my decision to go to an interdisciplinary program for graduate school. Those things contribute to the scientist that I am and they give me my unique perspective. So to me, a lot of those like DEI issues that I think are talked about a lot, really they have a place in science and I either on accident or on purpose, I don't really know, have gone out of my way to make sure that I'm always remembering that, right? The same diversity that exists in the brain is what exists in society and we should be more cognizant of that, I think a lot of the time. In terms of like DEI work for Emory, I actually don't do that much DEI work for Emory. That's not necessarily on purpose, but sometimes it feels like it is. Being a postdoc is weird because you're essentially on some level just an employee of the university. It's not like when you go to grad school or undergrad and you have like a cohort of people, it's just you. And so there are definitely times when I feel like Emory doesn't value their postdocs um, or doesn't value like their perspectives on DEI stuff. And so I don't really engage with them in a lot of work unless it comes from one of the two of the grad students in our, in my lab or in Victor's lab, um, Alicia Lane and Megan Wynn. They do a lot of DEI stuff for their neuroscience grad program. And so I've spoken on panels for them. I've given lectures for them. And there's honestly very little I wouldn't do to like help a student, whether that's a grad student or an undergrad. And I think one of the, the strangest things about doing the kind of DEI work I do is that at the end of the day, when I go to Emory, there is still this feeling of like, no one knows who I am here. Like there's no sense of, there's the sense of community in my lab. I want that to be very clear. Like I love my lab and we get along great. And it's honestly the happiest lab environment I've ever been in. It's really kind of scary sometimes how much we all like each other. But on like an institutional level, I just kind of think of Emory as my employer. And that's weird because as a grad student at Georgetown, I played a really big role in like our student government and like policies and things that we would talk to. Like I was really good friends with um, the director of our program and I felt like I had a voice and I had a say, but when I'm at Emory and a postdoc there, I, I definitely don't feel that way. It's only when I like leave and go do other things for other universities that I'm like, oh, I'm like doing something cool. I know like the way that my grant works, it, it's funding for me and my project and my ideas. And so even though I know that like my department really appreciates me, like the cell biology department loves me and I love them. And we have talked about doing like workshops for like being a better mentor or um, like self-advocacy and like building better relationships with your trainees and things like that. Like a lot of sort of top down, like people in position of power, PI change. We've like scheduled to do a lot of those workshops and things like that. When I think about Emory as a whole, though, I'm like, I have no idea what happens here. <laughs> I share this parking deck with like 3,000 people. I don't even know them. So I am one of the co-founders of Black and Neuro and the president-elect. And I I think maybe my presidency starts like in the summer, but I could be wrong. I don't, I don't actually know. Um, but Black and Neuro essentially started after Black in the Astro Week and Black Birders Week. And it really did start with like a tweet. Angeline Dukes, who's like our current president and she's a grad student, um, was I don't know, on Twitter and she was like, are we going to have a Black and Neuro week? And one of my friends, who's like truly just one of my like internet friends, like we've never met in real life, we're just friends on Twitter, um, tagged me and I was like, Kayla, we should do this. Like we should help with this. And I was like, yeah. And so we had, she put out that tweet. And then by that, like Friday, we had had a Zoom meeting with like 20 something other people 
um, like other folks in neuroscience who wanted to help. And I think like three weeks later, two weeks later, uh, we had Black and Neuro Week and it was fantastic. It was like really stressful in some some regards, like to put it all together really quickly, but everyone was so efficient and fantastic at their jobs that it was great. Um, and now we're like trying to become a nonprofit, um, which has been really great. I also forgot uh, how important like lawyers are in general until this process began. Um, but it's been so much fun. We do a lot of programming and that's probably my favorite part. We've had workshops on like negotiation, on like preparing for interviews. Um, we've hosted one or two workshops on like how to be a better mentor, um, how to have like difficult discussions and like self-advocacy. And a lot of what we do, I think is so powerful in a way that like, I wish I had had it when I was in graduate school. And I didn't, that's fine, but it would have been so helpful. And I actually remember doing one of, I think it was the Black and Neuro roll call. So like the first day of Ben Week um, when we first did it, there was a day I was just like scrolling on Twitter and it was like everywhere. And I was like, where have all of you been? Like I have been going to neuroscience conferences since I was a sophomore in college. And I have always been one of the only Black people in any room. And so I was like frustrated, but also happy and like very emotional. And I was like, this is so fantastic. Sorry, that was like a tangent and a rant all at the same time. But I, I really love the work that we do. And I love being a part of that community. And I think one of my favorite things about Black and Neuro is that it is this like trainee driven movement like there are I think Brielle is a, a she just accepted a professorship I'm a postdoc Monica's a postdoc Nubat is a postdoc so that's four of us and then the other like 20 something are all graduate students and I think that that really speaks to like the need for that kind of community support but also like the work ethic of these graduate students and how great they are as an organization we we meet like twice a month via Zoom to do like organizational things. And then there are other people that like Ubada and I have been friends for years um, and working in Black and Neuro has like made us better friends. Um, same with uh, Tiago, um, another like co-founder. And so we talk like every day. <laughs> and I think it's really just having that network of support where you can like have a bad day and you feel comfortable just like venting to your friends in a way that is like, this is trash and I'm upset and no one is going to judge you. Like they very much are like being supportive, but also being like reasonable and understanding um, in a way that they're like, we can like complain and cry about this, but we also do have to like fix it though. Like you, you still have to do your job. And then I'm like, okay, I guess that's fine. But so it's been really great. This is probably going to sound like horrible. I think complaining is one of, the greatest gifts God has ever given us. The ability to like get something off of your chest that upsets you is very, very great. And I think that my love of like being dramatic and funny and complaining about something comes from being a like Southern gossip where I'm just like, no, someone tell me a really great story with a dramatic flair um, so we can all laugh. So we can laugh about it because otherwise I'm going to cry and like crack under the pressure. Um, and so for me, it's about like having really good friends. It's about having people that you trust, like people that you know have your best interests at heart. And a lot of the times before I go complain to my friends, depending on how close we are, um, but 
a lot of the times. If it's like a very serious issue, I will always ask them if they have the space to like talk about this very serious thing. If I'm just about to like make a bunch of jokes and roast someone and be upset, then I normally don't because I'm like, it's funny, so it's fine. But I think like it is toxic positivity and I feel like so many people have it. And it's like, I am incredibly grateful and thankful for all that I have and all that I do and all the hard work and like my friends and my family and things like that. But there are just some days where I'm like, no, F this, all of it. Like I'm so mad. And I think not recognizing that is a really big problem in academia. Like one of the things I hear a lot when we talk about like uh, like early career scientists leaving academia to go to industry or something like that. Professors being like, being a professor is the best job in the world. And like, you should be like grateful to be like an intellectual and a part of this community or whatever. And I'm like, I mean, I guess that's true, but all you do also is complain about your job. Like I don't, I'm pro like then session because I'm pro like transparency and being really real about like the struggle and what is going on. Because if you just keep it pent up forever, you're never going to be, you're never going to be able to figure out what makes you happy. And there have definitely been times in the past semester, for sure, where I've woken up and been like, I don't have anything to complain about. And that is so weird. But there are other days where I wake up and I'm like, wow, I really hate this. I hate this job. (laughs) And I think it is the natural ebb and flow. And I feel like people are so quick to just accept positivity and then dismiss any sort of like contentment or upsetness. I don't understand that because I'm like, this is our life. We're currently living it. I don't like press pause on my like time here on earth or whatever. Every time I walk in the lab, it's still going. Yeah, I think my motivation comes from like two very like distinct places. One is like my own personal fear of being mediocre. Like I was really raised by parents who were like, supportive, but also very much like, you will be good at the, like, you will be good at stuff. Um, And for me as a person, one of my greatest fears is like not living up to my potential and the way that I see success and what I think that is, that is a big motivation for me. I think another motivation and probably like the second biggest motivation for sure is just being the person that I needed when I was younger, like being able to give back to a community that did so much for me, being able to be a role model to other people who look like I do or identify as I do so that they can see their dreams as achievable is really important to me. Um, I remember the first time I met a Black woman with a PhD was Dr. Michelle Jones London um, at the Society for Neuroscience Conference in 2012. It had never dawned on me until that moment that I had never seen or known another Black woman that did science. Even like to this day, I've never had a Black professor in my life. I've never had a Black teacher. And it wasn't until like graduate school that I realized how valuable and important that would be for me. And so my biggest motivation in staying in academia is to show students that they can define success for themselves and that they can do the things that they want to do and the causes that they're passionate about. You can do all of that and still be successful and still do this career if you want. And I think that if you want part is is the thing that I really try to emphasize to people because in my mind, there's no shame in leaving academia. Sometimes the pros really outweigh the cons like in terms of staying. But I feel like a lot of people like across intersectionalities feel like if they leave, then they're like quitting or they're giving up. And I'm like, are you or are you just choosing yourself? 
and your own happiness and what that looks like? Or, you know, are you choosing a job that pays well? That also counts and also means something. I essentially ended up at Emory in what is a slightly convoluted story. Um, So my third year, my fourth year of graduate school, I applied for um, this F99 K00 fellowship. So it's a fellowship that would essentially fund my last years of grad school and the next four years of my postdoc. And at that point in my graduate school career, I was so like jaded and tired and fed up. And so I was like, this is the last grant that I'm going to apply for. And if I get it, then I will stay in academia and I will like go do a postdoc. If I don't get it, I will figure something out. Um, And so I got the grant and that was like incredibly shocking to me. Um, And I'm really thankful for it now. It still funds my research. I got the grant and then I had a falling out with one of my mentors. I had like a co-mentorship and so I had a falling out with one of them. But in the midst of that falling out, I was, again, I thought that the grant would like solve all of my problems and I would be like really happy and like ready to finish, but it didn't. And so I had to, I had to deal with like so much crap just from my lap. And so I was super stressed. And so I started just looking for postdocs, like in secret, kind of like I was just going on postdoc interviews and like meeting with PIs. And I found uh, Victor Fondas, who I work for now. And I was really upfront with him and everybody that I interviewed with, but I was really upfront with them about the fact that I wasn't sure if I even wanted to stay in academia. I wasn't even sure if I liked science anymore, but I was good at it. And I wanted to have a postdoctoral fellowship where I could get like the best experience, like the best possible scenario for me to stay and to thrive. And so I like sat down and I made this like plan for myself and my like mentor. Um, And it was like super detailed. I was I was always really surprised that they even, like any of them even listened to me about it, honestly. But I sat down with them and I was like, these are the things that I need. These are the things that I want. This is what I want to do. And if you can give me that, I'm essentially a free postdoc and I'll come work for you. Um, And Victor was the most enthusiastic out of all the other professors that I talked to. And he was like, oh, we're going to nail this. This is going to be so great. And so that is like, a long-winded version of that story. I think another big thing that I realized when I was in DC was that I wanted to come back home. Like I miss my family. Um, And I'm not really a family-oriented person. I'm more of a chosen family person. I love my family, but like we've just never, we're not like close like that. We're a bunch of Capricorns. It just like doesn't work out. And so when I was looking for postdocs, I remember it was such a weird feeling that I was like, no, I want to go back to Atlanta because truthfully, I had spent my entire childhood begging to leave the state of Georgia. So the idea that I left and I'm like, no, I would like to go back was really shocking to me. But I'm incredibly happy that I did it. And I'm incredibly happy in my postdoc now. So hopping between states, because I would like come home in graduate school for the holidays or for like break, I was still really close with a lot of my friends. And so even though I moved back like in the middle of the pandemic in July, 2020, June, 2020, for like 98% of me and my friends, um, we were like still very close and like we would Zoom or like have Zoom happy hours and like hang out together. And so I've always felt really fortunate that I am still able to have those connections with people. I am friends with people that I've known since I was in middle school and we've always stayed close. And that is really like empowering to me and supportive. And it's nice One of the things I love about long-term friendships is that you get to see the growth of your friends. Like 
you get to see them and their dreams come true. You get to see them excel. And like now a bunch of my friends are like having kids and that's like really weird, but it's super exciting. And to be a part of those journeys and to kind of like, even though I took that like six year hiatus to go to DC, to come back and for them to still like be so supportive of me is great. It was odd. Like the physical act of moving was like my dad came and met me in DC with a U-Haul. And I don't know if anybody has ever experienced like those TikToks of like dads at the airport, but like dads packing. It was really like that. It was like comedy. He like moved all my boxes and was like, these are packed horribly. Every five seconds, it was like, why do you have so much stuff? And I'm like, dad, I've lived here for six years. That was a great comedic break, I think. But when I got back to Atlanta, it was weird because I didn't know, because it was like the height of the pandemic. So I was like are we doing things? Like, is that allowed? Can I see anybody? And so I think for the first like month or two, I really didn't see that many people. I just like got to hang out with my dad, which actually was great because he's like retired now and bored all the time. Um, and I got to see my my brother and my sister um, before, they, before my sister went to college. And so it was like a slow, like a very gradual return to normal. But I really can't like emphasize enough how like rewarding it is to be like to be able to be around my family and friends whenever I want now. Teaching at Agnes has been awesome, mainly for that reason of like returning to that community and seeing the way that like the neuroscience program and like the biology department has improved and the the way the students are really always excelling and so engaged with what they do. Like it's been a rough couple of years for everybody and they still manage to like show up and like get the work done and the work is good and like have interesting conversations and engaging questions and things like that. I think one of the things that I I have learned in teaching the past two years, like through the pandemic, is like ways that I can improve my teaching style, which I think is really good and powerful. And it's nice for some like weird full circle moment feeling to me. It is really nice to be having those sort of learning experiences for myself at a place that like made me into the scientist that I am. Um, and so it's a lot of fun. It can definitely be stressful. We're all doing well. So that that's really the only thing that I care about. Yeah, so my old uh, mentor, Dr. Lairmore, was essentially looking for adjuncts to like teach classes. And she like emailed me and asked if I would want to do it. And I said, absolutely. So I was really happy. We've always kept in touch. Like even when I was in graduate school, when I would come home to visit, she's like one of the first people I would go see. And so it was nice to have that connection. But yeah, she basically asked and I was like, I would love to. So this semester I'm teaching research foundations and neuroscience research lab. Um, and it's essentially a course where the students use crayfish as a model and they get to design their own experiments um, and test their own hypotheses. Um, and they've presented at like two poster sessions now, which has been really great. And I, I like teaching this course a lot, even though sometimes when I teach it, I feel like a glorified babysitter because a lot of it is just me being like, design your experiment and I'm here to like help you and we'll troubleshoot like if something is too hard or too easy or like not going to work. Um, and so it's, I think it's a really great approach to teaching in terms of the class structure because it gives students like hands-on experience. And again, as a professor, it's like, pretty breezy class. Like I just make sure nothing's like on fire or not breaking anything. Um, and like the hardest part is getting the students to be comfortable with the crayfish, but that's also really entertaining because they are like terrified of them. And I'm like, 
you'd literally just like put a lid on it and it'll stop moving. <laughs> there are like maybe one or two students at Agnes that I, I've helped like with grad school applications this semester um, or just like have talked to a lot about life stuff. A lot of my mentees come from Black and Neuro and like people who have like reached out to me on social media for like various help with various things. And that has been really rewarding too. I think one of the one of the coolest things, honestly, about teaching at Agnes now is kind of seeing how great of a job the neuroscience program like still has done that so many of their students are like ready to go to graduate school. They don't really need that much like help or insight or anything like that. They just need someone to like remind them that they can do it. And I think that that's really powerful. One of the hardest things about graduate school is that it is a time of like repeat failure over and over again, because that's what science is, right? Science is testing hypotheses and being trying to like prove yourself wrong um, so that you can be right in that sort of like fundamental scientific method way. And so I was burnt out, one, because like nothing was working. None of my science was working. I was constantly troubleshooting things that I felt like should be working. I was constantly troubleshooting things. I was constantly having to like, as a more senior graduate student, help and try and train other grad students, not even in my lab, just in like a peer mentor kind of way. And it can be so debilitating to have to go to work every day, like have to go to lab every day to do this experiment that you don't think is going to work over and over and over again, because it's like the core of your thesis. And I think one of the hardest things about science, right, when the science doesn't work, you have to work, you have to like be in lab more and keep working. And when the science does work, you still have to be in lab more and keep working. And so there wasn't really a great like role model of work-life balance in my various labs. I had to like figure out how I worked best in order for that to be a thing. But a lot of the burnt out was just because I was so tired of being a student. Like I was tired of being broke and living in DC and like not being able to see my family. And by the time I, like by the time, like my fifth year of graduate school, it honestly felt like I was in prison. Like I would go to lab and be, you know, like when you're so tired, when you're in a place and then the second you leave, you get like the biggest rush of energy. That's how I was every day. I would leave Georgetown and be like, wow, I feel like a thousand times lighter. And I was like, this is not healthy. This is not good. Um, And so I think, unfortunately, on some level, it's just the nature of the job. And there are definitely things, there are definitely like mentor strategies and things that I know now that would have made that better. But I didn't have access to them like when I was in graduate school. So I just settled into being super burnt out. What I did find towards the end of graduate school was that if I just planned out my days like very meticulously, I could get things done. And so all of my friends used to make fun of me because I would have this like very detailed Google calendar and I would have my experiments planned down to like the hour. And I would be like at two o'clock, I'm leaving because I'm done with science now. And that actually was a really big help to know that like, if I'm not doing anything that requires me to be in lab, I don't have to be in lab. Like I can leave. There's no reason for me to like read papers in lab when it's a nice day outside and I can go like, I don't know, get some vitamin D and like not be trapped inside this windowless room. Um, So making like small decisions like that really gave me a lot of autonomy and ownership over my work. And it kind of helped me get out of that burnout phase where I was like, all right, these are the experiments that I need to do today. I would like walk in with a plan, get it done, leave. And then because I was also writing my thesis, I would like go sit outside in the park and like write my thesis. And that was incredibly helpful. I get really annoyed 
when people do this like level of policing, um, especially in the pandemic, uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I even, so like at Agnes, um, I'm teaching there this semester and this is our first semester of like in-person classes again. And it was really stressful. I taught last year when we were like virtual and that was like pretty chill, honestly, or at least I, I made it really chill for me and my classes because I was like, no one needs extra stress at this time. But one of the things I realized or noticed when we got back to like in-person classes was like all of the grace that people had been had been extending or like even said that they were extending. I don't know if I believe them anymore. It really disappeared when it came to like students and the expectations of like undergrad students, grad students, um, even some postdocs that I know. And it was really upsetting to me, right? One of the things that I can't stand is when people sort of push their expectations onto you without commuting, communicating to you that that is the expectation. And so I think a lot of my students talked to me this semester about professors who like were so rigid in their policies about like late work, who were so rigid in like their attendance policies in all of these things. And I'm like, none of this matters. Like it is unfortunate to me in a lot of ways to see that like the pandemic really hasn't changed the way that people teach and the pe- the way that people interact with students, right? Like I email people honestly in under like 20 minutes. Like I'm really good at making sure my inbox is clean, but I also like don't have kids and don't have a partner and like live alone. Like my time is my own. So I really do have like the ability and the free time and sometimes the lack of work-life boundaries to respond to an email at nine o'clock at night. Like I don't care. Um, but I never want to make a student feel bad or a person feel bad for not responding to me instantaneously. Like, I don't know. It's just so weird. I don't understand why people really dig their heels in on these sorts of issues, but they do. I'm like, it's an email. I'm on my phone all the time. It's like, I, I, it's okay if you're not. And I feel like if it's a time sensitive issue, then the person will respond in a timely fashion. If it's just you asking a question or whatever, then what are we doing? Why are we so grumpy? During my postdoc, I've learned like in a very Marie Kondo way that I only do things that make me happy now. Like that includes like science, but also like extracurricular things outside of science. Like this podcast to me is like something that makes me really happy. Um, And one of the ways that I've been able to do that in terms of science is having a really supportive like mentoring team, um, like not just my PI, but other people in my lab and other people in my department who we talk about like the experiments that need to be done. And then if it's something like I'm trying to think, I really dislike, for example, uh, QPCR as like a method, um, as like a physical doing it in science, because I always feel like I'm going to mess it up. Um, and so instead of me doing a method that I hate over and over again. My project now focuses more on protein work as opposed to RNA work. And that doesn't mean that I won't have to do like RNA-based experiments ever. It just means that my priority is trying to answer these protein questions first before I look at this RNA work, because I know it's going to make me grumpy. Um, And I think having that level of intention, even though it sounds really silly with the way that you do your job is really important, right? Because you don't, you don't want to have to do something every day that you hate. (laughs) And that has been something that Victor as a PI has really given me the flexibility to do where he's like, if you like an assay, you like a thing, let's keep doing it. Like 
let's use it to the best of our ability to answer all the questions. And then we'll go back and fill in the pieces with other things. There are two big things that I always recommend to people. The first is to like really sit down with yourself and like make a list of everything that you like to do and everything that you don't like to do. And you and I personally, I put the category of things I don't like to do. Like it's kind of like making a list of your strengths and weaknesses. Um, But instead of like weaknesses, it's like weaknesses that I'm comfortable working on and getting better at. And then it's weaknesses that I'm like, this is just who I am. Like I'm not doing that anymore. Um, And sit down with that list and see like how it aligns with your career goals, right? Like if you know that you're really great at science communication and you're really good at like a particular like methodology or something like that, add that to the list and see how it pans out for you. Like see how, given all of that information, right? All of that data, what you're good at, what you like need to improve on and what you're comfortable like being bad with, which I think is something more people should lean into. Having those three categories of things can really help you design your life, like the next phase of your life or whatever it is you're going through in a concrete way. For me, I'm like a type A Google calendar kind of person. So I like took that information, that sort of like fake personality test I gave myself. And then I thought about all of the crap that I needed to do to finish, like whether that's like finish the semester, finish an experiment, finish applications for things. And I tried to play to my strengths the best that I could, just like blocking off time in my schedule, having meetings and conversations with my mentors about like, this is what I'm doing. That can be as easy as things like I'm a morning person. So I do stuff in the morning, like after 3 p.m. I normally don't do any work because I am like burnt out. Um, and just from the day, like I'm like, I'm tired now, but really like learning what your strengths are and playing to them is one of, I think the biggest pieces of advice I could give people. I don't know why people are uncomfortable with that, but like, it is one of my favorite things to know about myself that there are things that I am just bad at and I'm okay being bad at those things because there are other people in the world that can pick up the slack in terms of that. I think it's easier now for a lot of reasons, but I think the main one is that like I no longer attach my self-worth to like the outcome of an experiment or the outcome of winning an award or something like that. Like I am able to separate those two things and it makes it easier to be like, yeah, I'm really bad at QPCR, so I don't want to do them. And I think a lot of it also just comes with like age and time. Like I remember undergrad I like did bad in a class or like on an exam or something like that. And I beat myself up about that for days. And that wasn't really productive. Like I was just miserable over those days. And so I think some of it is also just like life perspective. And if you can really pinpoint out what you're okay not excelling at, it gives you so much time and energy to do the things that you that you do excel at, that you are good at. I think that that's an important part of just like growth as a person and as a scientist to be like, these are this is my skill set and I'm going to do the best I can with that. That didn't happen for me, truthfully, until like the end of graduate school. And I think a big reason for that is because I was a stellar undergraduate researcher. Like I authored five papers as an undergrad. I worked in three labs at once my senior year. I, I was exceptional at what I did. And when I went to graduate school, I was like, humbled in a way where I had to learn how to do that in the environment that I was in. I had to learn how to succeed. And I realized towards the end of graduate school that if I had had access to the sort of mentorship and support 
that I had in undergrad, in grad school, that I would have still been exceptional and that that wasn't my fault. And that didn't make me a bad scientist or a bad student, right? Like people get PhDs every day, which is wild to even think about, but they do. And my definition of like a good PhD, a good person, a good scientist with a PhD is someone who can think critically and troubleshoot their science and like knows why we do what we do. And that's everything from like experiments to like data presentation and publications and things like that. I realized by the end of graduate school how much growth I had done. Like I came into my program great and I left exceptional. And once I realized that and realized that like no one could take that from me, like I knew how hard I worked to like get the data that I had in my thesis, to win the awards that I had won, to, you know, have all of these things that I earned. And once I realized that, it was really a moment of me being like, a lot of this has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with my ability and my skill. It's just the environment and the situation I was dealt with and or like handed or whatever. And so I went into my postdoc really wanting to make the best of that and wanting to keep that same level of confidence because I think, I mean, it's taken me like 29 years to get it. And I was like, and I like it. It's a good feeling. And it can be hard too, because you just have to have so much faith and confidence in yourself, but in a new sort of vacuum where you don't have people telling you that you're doing a good job or that you're great all of the time. You're just supposed to know. I, as a person with a lot of anxiety, have no idea how people just like, like I had friends in graduate school who never felt like imposter syndrome or like struggle. And I'm like, what are you on? Like, tell me, I want whatever that is. And I used to think that it was because they maybe weren't like super self-aware or like they, I don't know, didn't think super critically or something. But I think it's actually just that they had confidence and faith in themselves. And I have that now in spades and it's really changed the way that I see myself and the way that I like do science now. But it's, it was really hard. It kind of feels like it happened overnight or like in a slow, sped up kind of way, but it's been really great. <laughs> I can say that. One of the best ways to navigate like being anxious or having anxious thoughts in academia to me is to realize that pretty much everybody actually has them. They just don't ever talk about them. I am a person that like needs to think things through out loud. And so putting a voice to a lot of those anxious thoughts is good for me. And I do that either like with a group of friends um, that I really love and trust who are also academics. Uh, I also am a big fan of talking to myself um, and trying to like talk through those problems. And then also not necessarily like catastrophizing, but just like actually thinking of what the worst case scenario could be. Like, I don't win this award. What does that mean? Like, my Nana's still going to love me. I'm still going to have a job. Nobody, I'm just going to be sad and using it as like a moment of growth. And so for me, it's really been vocalizing a lot of those fears. And one of the biggest questions that I always ask myself if I'm super anxious is like, what is it that I'm afraid of? Like what could actually go wrong? That's all for today. Thanks for listening. This has been Varied Voices in STEM. I'm Dr. Erica Tracy. I'm Charlize Williams. My name is Rora Dongo. And I'm M. Stacy. Remember, stay safe, 
Stay curious and share your stories.